I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue here on Our American Stories. And up next, we bring you a story from one of our listeners from the Twin Cities, and that's Minneapolis-St. Paul, where we broadcast on the great station WCCO AM 830. You've already heard Paul Kotz on this show, and he's back with more stories from his new book, Profiles in Kindness. Paul is a professor at St. Mary's University of Minnesota, Today, he'll talk about the importance of importance and how the why of what we do matters. Here's Paul. Many of us know what we do and how we do it very well. But when asked why we do it, we often pause and see that this is a question we might need to explore further. We've heard of people like Simon Sinek, Mike Vec, and Maya Angelou, three current individuals who bring these ideas to our attention. They make the case that it isn't just about the money so much as loving what you do and how you make people feel. Well, I admit that I love what I do. And recently I had a student who was so adamant that their grade should be changed on a critique assignment. The person is an intelligent, hard worker with drive and determination. At the moment, I did not love what I do. What confounded me was that they actually had a 92% on the assignment and were irritated that I docked them for not fully synthesizing two articles to a coherent conclusion. That was not in the rubric, I was told in an email. My credibility was being questioned, and for a fleeting moment, I went back to the notion of pursuing a career in carpentry, which I also enjoy. But my why 
brought me back to the discussion with a revitalized impetus. Explicitly, they were right. I was trying to make this talented individual even better, knowing integrating ideas and interweaving them together is vital to this degree and to life. I was also cognizant that I too have my limitations as a professor and a grader. So I called them. Yes, by phone. Zoom has already been a staple of my days. And I call people often because hearing a person's voice and the nuances of feeling are kind of the senses that we could tap into and often we neglect them. It can also be tiring, so I try to use it with a little discretion. Sometimes people are startled because from an educator, a call means they're in trouble or there could be something wrong. Well, in talking with the person, I emphasized that they were doing very well and there was plenty to say. I asked them, how are you doing? Not on the upcoming assignments, but as a person. There was a pause. Conversation led to understanding, which led to the revelation that this course was the only thing good happening in this person's life right now. The only good? This saddened me for a moment. The feeling was palpable. Their job was eating up weekends, family issues, this class I offered, the stress of the pandemic, trying to be part-time principal at home with their kids, and that fear of the unknown. They were all weighing heavily on this individual. I shared how I used to bring my two daughters to the University of Minnesota with me, trying to finish my degree while still working in business. I would carry my books over my shoulder, holding the hand of one of my ebullient daughters and initially carrying my other bundle of joy in my left arm, alternating when needed. I was at hand to my kids, but not consciously fully present. Care was evident and it taught me to balance what I could and I kept my kids fed and happy, well, generally. It seemed to resonate with this person. We connected and I understood, empathizing what they were going through. I didn't realize that listening and through storytelling that breaking through the shell of a grade being lower than expected was just scratching the surface of what was truly within their soul. I sensed that the person wanted to know they have value and what they were doing was all worth it and they were not getting the affirmations from their immediate surroundings. The individual acknowledged within our discussion that in the long run the grade was not as important as knowing that what they do and how they do it has to complement why they are even pursuing this degree in the first place. When I showed how what they did in the rest of the course demonstrated their mastery, the person laughed in some relief and realized that they were actually doing phenomenal work already and should not worry as much about this assignment grade. Instead, what their future could be and how bright it looks could be a horizon worth looking toward. The why of what we do is often what keeps us going forward and sustains our heart and mind beating in a simpatico, especially when we doubt ourselves or wonder about our true purpose. I question my purpose sometimes. I encounter some very difficult situations and often I put my head in my hands and ask for guidance from others and above. Yet when I see a baby laugh, for instance, my grandson, and see new life emerging before my very eyes, I see a student change in confidence or see for themselves the realization that they are valuable and they grasp that they can give what they have to someone else. And a special thanks to Robbie for his work on the piece. And thanks to Paul Kotz, whose book Profiles in Kindness is available on Amazon and all the usual suspects. And think about what he did. He was not having a particularly good day. No day for a teacher is good when the student calls to complain about a 92. And he did what, well, good teachers do. He made the call. He called the student. And that's the why in the end. Why do we even teach? I know why my dad taught. He wanted to improve young people's lives, make them better people. Paul Cotts, the why behind a phone call with a student here on Our American Stories. 
Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. This is Our American Stories, and up next, Mackenzie Vath, a young woman who wrestled through some early challenges in her life and came out stronger for it. Our own Alex Cortez brings us her story. Mackenzie Vath has a dad who's incredible. Tim Bush's companies employ 3,500 Americans, and he's fighting to build a stronger Catholic church without corruption. But all of this can come at a cost. As a kid, we, um, he wasn't around at all. We didn't know who this dad figure was besides the fact that he was a hardworking man. That's it. I didn't know what he did. I didn't know where he went. He had a driver at the time because he would be so busy, he needed that extra time in the car to make calls and do emails and whatever else he was doing. And he was this mystery man, and he even worked on weekends. And I remember like this very vivid memory. His office was in the front of the house, and it was this beautiful all-wood library office. And there was a grand piano right outside the office doors, and I always wanted to play music. So I would sit at the piano and start to play, and obviously I was terrible because I never took lessons or anything, and I was a kid. I was like between eight and 10 years old. And so I was just kind of like poking around at the piano, but trying to figure it out. And he'd come out of his office and be like, Kenzie, quit it, knock it off, get off the piano. And I just never pursued music because it was something, it was always a distraction for my dad because he had, he had to work. And not that he noticed, but he just didn't give me that opportunity to just be a kid and explore. I kind of was always a really social kid until about high school and I was dealing with some illnesses that were kind of unexplained. I kept telling my parents I, I felt really tired and my joints were hurting and this and that, but nothing really came of it. I went to a few different doctors and they kept saying, you know, she's, she's fine, there's nothing wrong with her, it, she could be exaggerating, that was, that was probably my favorite one. I was diagnosed with Lyme disease at the age of 18. I was a senior in high school going into my freshman year in college. All the issues I had, even as a child, dealing with dyslexia and learning disabilities and fatigue and joint pain and all these random unexplained symptoms were all answered through this diagnosis. So it was interesting when I got that diagnosis my parents started to actually take me a little bit more seriously at that minute because they were saying, hey, you know, she's really been telling us something and we just didn't know just because the doctors were telling us one thing and she's telling us another. So I moved to Arizona with my mom the summer of my freshman year in college and got treated. I mean, it's something I've really tried to forget a lot of because of the times. It was very difficult at first. I was young. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand why I had to go through this. I was sitting next to people, you know, being treated for cancer. I was the youngest person by at least nine to 10 years. So I was like the pediatric patient in a sense, even though I was a teenager, I was the kid in the facility getting treated and being hooked up. I had surgery to get a pick line in my arm so they would access, they get direct access to be able to hook me up on IVs every day. I was taking about 50 different supplements. We lined it all, all up on the kitchen counter in our little apartment that we rented down the street. And it was an overwhelming period. I mean, my mother was, <clears throat> my mother was taking care of me. She was making sure I got in and out of a bathtub because I didn't have the strength to even stand in the shower and I couldn't 
get my pick line wet so I had to wrap my whole arm with cellophane and then she'd have to like wash my hair so it was it was a very reversed role in sense I was almost like this infant again that she had to take care of and it was difficult I think it was challenging for her as a mother to see her her child ill and you know at an age that I was supposed to be in my prime and I was supposed to be out in the world independently and learning how to take care of myself and um, enjoying my life. You know, I was supposed to be young and free and, you know, just worry, worryless. I didn't have, I was supposed to be careless in a sense. And that was complete opposite for my, my life. I was very cautious. I had to be very careful. I had to clean up my eating right away. I just wanted to be a normal kid and I didn't get that kind of opportunity. So I really went inward and became a little bit more introverted. I, I was a little more socially awkward. I wasn't as much of a performer. I didn't really want to be around big crowds. So I really struggled with like my personal development, but it was, um, and I'm trying to like really dive into the emotion. I really had to shift into a, an adult role as well. Like not only was I this infant trying to, I was being taken care of, but I also had to mature. I had to, I had to get into a headspace that knew my life wouldn't get to be like all the other kids my age. I wouldn't be able to eat whatever I want or stay up late or, you know, drink and party and I had to really take care of myself. And it was, I was mad for a long time. And even to this day, it's, there's definitely a dark, you know, dark, it was a dark time in my life. And it, it's something that is sensitive to talk about. But at the same time, like one silver lining that came out of that was the relationship that I built with my mom and the gratitude I had for her because as an infant, you're not, you don't realize how much your parents do for you or how much they take care of you. And as an adult, you really realize how much they give up to give up for you and how much they just love you unconditionally. And that was a really cool thing to see like later in life because you don't, well, most people don't get that opportunity to see that. Um, until their parents and then they realize they're like wow I have this kid now I know how much my parents loved me but I got to see that before I had a kid and before I went through that process of you know just understanding unconditional love and if my mom and I bonded over the funniest things we would watch when I got home from treatment I, I just laid down I couldn't do much so we'd watch Golden Girls and Bonanza and all these just really heartful, fun shows. Mackenzie was also taking college classes online, and after her treatment was completed, she tried to go in person. When I moved out to college, I still wasn't doing good, so I ended up moving home and um, kind of finishing off my schooling at home. So I got to get this really good quality time with my folks that my brother didn't really get to have because he went straight off to college and kind of never looked back. So it was, it was a silver lining. It was a silver lining in this terrible period of my life. And during that time, I really wanted to start documenting this time I had with my parents in this special growth period that I got to learn a lot about them and what they did and saw the ups and the downs of their daily life in a different lens as a little bit older adult. So that was kind of where I, where that all my curiosity all started more so with like what they were doing and how much they've done and really wanted to know kind of where it all stemmed from. So fast forward, uh, you know, after schooling and working and starting my own career and, you know, a few businesses down the line and everything else, I told my dad one day, I was just saying, I just made a joke like, oh, I'm gonna write a book about you. And he said, yeah, we'll see. I don't, I don't think so. Cause I love to say a lot of things and, you know, that just gave me more motivation to be like, okay, I'm gonna write this book and I'm gonna de like dedicate it to you as a legacy. I went in wanting um, to interview both my parents, but my dad just has a very fascinating story, as does my mom, by the way, and I could write a whole book about her alone because she, she's a, an amazing person. But I think 
the interest with my dad was because I didn't have as close of a relationship with my dad as I did with my mom. So I had my mom's story written before I needed to interview her. Like I knew who she was and I'm very close with her. I know a lot about her personally, but I didn't know much about my dad personally. And you're listening to Mackenzie Vath and she's telling her story, her childhood story. When we come back, more of Mackenzie Vath's journey here on Our American Story. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. 
Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with our American stories and with Mackenzie Vath's story of writing about her own dad, Tim Bush. Let's return to Alex Cortez. While interviewing her dad, Mackenzie learned so much more about his childhood and how it impacted his adulthood. His parents were very strict and never said those three words. I love you. It's funny. um, I had a few people tell me I shouldn't put that in the book. And I said it, it was necessary to go in the book because people had to understand where he came from and how he was raised and what that type of culture was in his house. Because if someone asked me where, you know, where I get to today, how did you get there? It's because of what I experienced in my life. So I thought it was very important. And then after the book released, you know, even my mom came up to me and she was like, wow, you didn't really paint the nicest picture for your grandma. And I was like, it wasn't about painting a nicer or a, a nice or a mean picture. I painted the realistic picture and the truth. And I wanted to show that to the reader that, you know, this is why he does what he does. You know, this is why he's motivated to, do, to be better. And I definitely think it's something that that's, drives him. So not being told I love you by your mother growing up and your dad always just, you know, wanting more from you, it's, it's hard. And there's two ways you could go. You could just self-pity yourself all day and not become anything and blame your parents or you can work harder and try to improve yourself and get out of those restraints and those emotional difficult times and he did he pushed through that and he loves his parents don't get me wrong he dotes on his parents more than anything and he still takes care of his mother today and his mother is very proud of him even though she is a a woman of very few words she shows up to things and that's that's I think that's her way of showing her happiness for him. And his father was a a very more sensitive guy, not as a parent, but he was definitely more sensitive just in general. And he was definitely proud of my dad. And um, yeah, it was definitely challenging. He didn't know how to give love or really receive love, I think. And I don't think you know he understood like different love languages and so that was definitely challenging for me because like I didn't really want him to tell me he loved me I want him to show me he loved me but he didn't even know how to do that but it looking back I understand now why he continued to say like hey Ken's and I'd be like yeah he's like I love you because he was never told that and so at least I knew if he never showed me he told me he loved me and I knew he did instinctually and Sometimes I, I'm sure as a child, he's never told me this, but I'm sure as a child, he questioned if his parents loved him or if he, they just, you know, were a little bit more old school and just had kids and the kids grow up and that was it. It was like, there was never emotional connection to your parents. It was almost like you were just had to be an independent being by the time you were born. And it's just, I don't think that's the way of nature. I don't think that's how nature intended it to be. And I'm proud of him for breaking those chains off of him and not, letting him get down with any self-pity or any blaming of anybody. He really is just, he's a self-made individual that's been motivated by that type of behavior, but he's also motivated by positive encouragement. And I think our family gives him that positive encouragement and his family gives him more of a, you know, a harder lesson to learn. But through that, he's made himself very successful. And I think at the end of the day, I, I would say he's very happy with that. I'm the one, you know, usually you're the, the parents are telling the kids to put their phones away at the dining room table. I'm the one telling my dad to put his phone away at dinner or when he's with, you know, my kids, I'm like, you know, put your phone away. And it's interesting. I think he made a big pivot when I started writing this book and then when my brother had his kids and he had his first grandkids. That was the biggest pivot I've seen in terms of a personality change with my father. Obviously, he hasn't slowed down in any capacity. He's constantly making deals, constantly on the phone, and doing more emails than probably our entire workforce combined. But he started to pay attention 
to not having that time with his kids and he regretted it. One night he, you know, a few drinks in, we sat down on the couch and the kids were in bed and he just, he kind of got emotional and he was like, you know, I really wish I spent more time with you kids. Especially when we were older, you know, kind of like the in between the teens time uh, when he was really developing his business, you know, he just wasn't around much and he, he has verbalized that. He's definitely, he's definitely upset about it, but he doesn't dwell on it. He's not the type of person that everything's lost because he, he didn't have that time. I think he just, he, he's bummed, but then now he's, he's making up with it. He's trying to make up with it um, by spending time with the grandkids, which is enough for me. I think I just love him being around my kids and you know, Garrett's kids and just watching him with our kids is really exciting to see because for us it's almost getting that love that maybe we needed back in that time but now our kids get that love which is more fulfilling for me at least. And like her dad, Mackenzie's good at turning negatives into positives and she did complete her college degree in holistic medicine. I never let getting treatment like stopped my progress, especially with education. Like I completed my degree in four years, like even though I had to take time off and it was much harder for me to do, I never let it stop me from getting things done. And that was, I'm proud of myself for that. I, I never told myself that or have given myself a pat on the back, but so many people could make excuses for getting ill, especially at a young age. And, and I definitely had my fair share excuses, but I, I never wanted to like not work and just be taken care of by my parents and you know not go to school and kind of make those self-development excuses and I, I really wanted to become somebody and do something with my life and have a purpose and so I was very driven by that purpose and who knew getting sick may be that purpose for me. One of the biggest things when it comes to healing or treating anything is having someone to relate to in a community to bond with and so I wanted to create that community through my business Holistic Umbrella and it just started with a few people I met in clinic from getting treated a few extra times after Arizona I, I, I had some flare-ups and had to get treated a few other times locally in Orange County and I met a lot of people through that circuit and I, and I met people my age that had Lyme so it was it was a you know, it was something I had to, my, through my own suffering, I helped ease some suffering for other people. And I've helped hundreds of people since my illness. It's definitely a calling for me. My dad always jokes, he's like, man, if you didn't have Lyme disease, could you imagine what you'd do? And I was like, yeah, that's the problem. I'd have another Tim Bush on our hands, so we can't do that. But he just cracks up at me because I'm, I'm nonstop, I'm like him. Like I get obsessed about doing something new and like getting something done. And he he's just like, Kenzie, like someone had to numb you. Like, and I had to be the Lyme. Like I just, my Lyme doesn't allow me to work to full capacity every day. And it's funny how much I do in a normal day. So if I didn't have Lyme, that's the joke. Like it would be another little Tim Bush running around like doing crazy things. I don't know. <laughs> And you've been listening to Mackenzie Vath's story, and it's a beautiful story. The book is The Paperboy, an oral history of a living legend, my dad, Tim Bush. Go to Amazon and pick it up. Mackenzie Vath's story, the story of so many daughters and a driven parent, here on Our American Story. Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. 
But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with our American stories. And up next, we have the story of Vincent Anthony, founder of the Center for Puppetry Arts. Vincent founded the center in 1978 and was the executive director for 41 years until retiring in January of 2020. The Center for Puppetry Arts, located in Atlanta, Georgia, is more than just a museum. The center has classes for children and adults alike, as well as performances. Here is their founder, Vincent Anthony. People have equated learning to manipulate puppets with learning musical instruments. 
it takes a lot of skill to be able to, to work a puppet and um, a lot of practice, a lot of patience. Most people don't realize how complicated it is to take this lifeless object and create an image that people believe in. Well, if I had to tell you what makes puppets so popular, I would say the first thing is the image. You know, you have Miss Piggy, you have Kermit, you have non-traditional actors. You know, they're, they're puppets, but they're, that they perform on stage. And then it's the message. Puppets are able to deliver incredible messages, whether it's messages about um, illnesses or messages about happiness, messages about a whole variety of things. I uh, have always been interested in theater and made some puppets in, in junior high. After uh, high school, I went to college for a couple of years. It was bored, it was bored to tears with it. So I decided to go to New York and study acting. And while I was in New York studying acting, some friends of mine got jobs as puppeteers. And it sounded fascinating to me. So the next time I saw ads in the theater newspaper, I saw an advertisement for puppeteers. So I went ahead and auditioned. It sounds funny, but when I, I held this marionette in my hands for the audition, didn't know what I was doing. I'd never had a professional puppet in my hands before. I made a career decision at that time. It sounded, seemed so right to me. It was just fascinating. I thought, well, I want to do this. This is what I want to do for my career. And basically that's what I did. I went ahead and followed that instinct and became a puppeteer. Worked as a puppeteer for a while. And then I formed my own company in Atlanta, Georgia. Moved on to become the president of the National Association. And then I formed the center in 1978. Well, the world of puppetry is a fascinating world. First of all, it's global. There's a puppet tradition in almost every country in the world. Historically, it's an amazing thing. It goes back just forever and ever. And as long as people have had the means to communicate, they've chosen to use objects to communicate with, which is what puppetry is. There were pictures of cave walls where there were shadows on the walls. And those were considered some of the earliest puppets that were ever created because there are different kinds of puppets, but one kind of puppet is a shadow puppet, which basically is made by your hand or your body to be between the light source and the surface behind you. So puppets go back way a long, a long way. It goes back very far in almost every culture on earth. And so it fascinated me. So it just fascinated me from the very beginning. And as I got more involved, it became much more fascinating to me, uh, the history of it and the, the breadth of it. In starting to plan the World Puppetry Festival uh, in Washington, Jim Henson uh, was a member of Puppeteers of America, the organization that I was the president of. And he offered to underwrite the festival in Washington. And so I got to know him and uh, we became friends. He was incredibly interested in the global puppetry community. He was eager to learn more about the different aspects of puppetry. And especially he was interested in what companies, what puppet companies were doing in different places in the world. And because I was traveling so much and seeing so much puppetry at the time, uh, we became friends and we exchanged information. I, we would talk about the different shows that I had seen. And, and in some cases, I'd recommend that he would see some certain shows. And when I was getting ready to start the center, he was involved, of course. I asked him to come and cut the ribbon to open the center. And there's a, a funny story about this. He was making the Muppet movie in, in Hollywood at the time. And I asked if I could see him and tell him more about what I wanted to do. And he said, sure, come on and uh, come to the set where we're filming. So I flew to, flew to Los Angeles, went to Hollywood, and went on the set of the Muppet movie. And he was filming a wonderful scene, a campfire scene, with all the Muppets sitting around this campfire in the desert. And uh, I watched the film, film the scene, and then we went to lunch, and I said to Jim, you know, here's this idea I have about forming the center and creating this place where we could have activities uh, from all over the world and I explained what I was wanted to do and he was very very interested in it and he said uh, and I said to him would you please come and cut the ribbon he said well you know Kermit will be there he'll cut the ribbon and maybe he'll bring me along so that's how he came to come to the center and cut the ribbon to open the center 
it was it was devastating to the whole puppetry community to have the loss of Jim Henson. Uh, he was supportive of every aspect of it. He had formed a foundation and was funding puppetry. I mean, he was very involved in in the puppetry movement, especially in the United States, and he was really missed tremendously. Fortunately, he had five children who were committed to puppetry as well. So um, there was hardly a, a gap in Jim leaving and, and the support from the family. So the good, the good thing was that when, when Jim was gone, his family picked up where he left off and they continued the foundation and all the support of the field. Well, there are a lot of high points at the center. A more recent one was in 2015, we opened a whole wing. The, the Henson family had been keeping in a warehouse items from all the movies and all the projects they were doing. And they had them all in storage. 2008 or nine or somewhere in there, they asked us if we wanted to uh, have some of those items. And we, we told them we would. And in order to house those items, we, we built an entire wing, new wing of the Center for Puppetry Arts. And it's really quite amazing. It's a beautiful new space. And in that wing, we put our whole museum. We put our, our uh, global collection in one side of it. And the other side of it, we put the Jim Hansen collection. And we have uh, a total of over 6,000 puppets in, in our museum. And in the Jim Hansen portion of our collection, there's between five and 600 objects. We only have a hundred or so on view at any one time, but we rotate them out in and out every few months so people can see different things every time they come. And we have three aspects of the center and we've had them from day one. We have the museum where we explore puppetry in all of its different phases globally and, and uh, in just every, every way we can possibly explore it. Our, our collection has puppets that are uh, actually pre-Columbian objects, so it goes back very far. And um, then we have the education program, which uh, assists adults and children in making puppets and using puppets for communication. And then we have the performance program. It features performances literally from all over the world. We also have a very active digital program. Our digital program goes to 88 countries at this point. Well, we've done a huge number of exhibits. And we've done exhibits that we've toured around the United States. One exhibit we toured around the United States, uh, we're going to be repeating, and that's an African-American exhibit where we celebrate uh, puppets in, in the African-American culture. Then we've done several Muppet exhibits. We've done the Dark Crystal exhibit, beautiful exhibit of puppets from the movie The Dark Crystal. We did an exhibit of Labyrinth as well, which was really quite amazing. We did a, actually we did a labyrinth ball that was quite successful. We had people coming from all literally all over the world, and we had this elaborate costume contest based on the um, labyrinth costumes. the The winner was actually from Australia. So we've done lots of different projects with puppets, and and in the museum especially, it's an amazing art form. It's much deeper than most people imagine, and uh, has much more. Um, just incredible depth and uh, richness. I guess that's what's fascinated me is that as long as I've been in the field, I never cease to learn more and understand more about uh, puppets and its traditions. I guess if I had to tell you what my favorite puppet was, it would be Kermit the Frog. And I think that's because it was Jim Henson's, his alter ego. It was great to have him, see him work the puppet and create that puppet. And uh, it still brings kind thoughts to my heart when I see it see it today. Puppets have so many different focal points that you people can relate to. I think if people aren't familiar with puppets, they should become familiar with them and see what aspects of puppetry they might be interested in, whether it's adult performances or classes or um, introducing their, their children, looking at puppets through the eyes of their children, Puppets are a fascinating art form and have something, literally something for everyone. And a special thanks to Faith for bringing us that piece, the story of Vincent Anthony and the Center for Puppetry Arts here on Our American Stories.
Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.